So I think before we jump into tonight's lesson, let's just bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for all your blessings, Lord, so, so many blessings. Lord, we thank you that you are always faithful. Lord, we thank you that you are always with us. You said you will never leave us and never forsake us. Lord, it, it doesn't matter what we're going through. We know you are always here with us. And uh, Lord, that's such a wonderful, wonderful promise. Lord, and so uh, I want to thank you for being with us and ask that you will please help us tonight. Lord, help me as I'm teaching. Lord, will you please um, bless the teaching. Lord, speak to us all in our hearts and make us more uh, like Christ. Thank you for all that you do. We praise your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So last week we ended off in chapter 4 of Philippians. So you can turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And we ended off in verse 4, uh, where Paul says the following, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Now I, I hope that you've started to do that. Uh, and if you weren't uh, doing it before, um, um, maybe you weren't really focusing on that during this week. I don't know. But uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's always a great thing to do, is to be able to rejoice in the Lord but let's continue in verse 5 then. Philippians 4 and verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, to be moderate means to be limited or, or to be restrained. Now, and that is not a restraint that Paul's talking here that is imposed by one person on another. Instead, it is the type of restraint that you put on yourself. So it means that you don't indulge. Someone who is moderate is someone who is able to exercise self-discipline and, and balance things in his life. The Lord has given us lots of things, folks, to enjoy in this life, as, as many of you know. But we shouldn't go to the extreme with it. For example, sleep. Well, sleep is nice, especially if you have a child that is less than one year old. <laughs> sleep is nice. But you shouldn't sleep too much, otherwise you will start to become lazy. Uh, eating cake. That's nice, but you shouldn't eat, be eating so much cake that you can hardly walk out the door. All right, you should know when to stop. You know, watching a movie, watching a movie is great, but at some point you need to switch off the TV and start to do something productive. There are so many things in this life that we can enjoy, but we should do that in moderation. We should we should restrain ourselves from indulging in these things, otherwise. Um, something that could have been a very innocent activity can actually turn out to be sinful for you. Another area that I think we should be moderate in is with our tempers. You know, we shouldn't burst into yelling and screaming for something that is mildly irritating or because you got you know, out of the wrong side of the bed that morning. You should rein in that temper of yours and, and you should restrain yourself. Now, obviously, there are, I think there are thousands of examples of where we can be moderate. And this moderation, or, or I want to call it self-restraint, should be known unto all men. People will notice it if, if you are this way. And, and the reason for our moderation that Paul says here, or, or a motivation for it, is the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. You know, when you focus on this reality that the Lord's coming is now even closer than it was yesterday, 
that will motivate you to be moderate in all things and, and to keep on pressing towards that goal of being conformed to the image of Christ, as we learned last week in chapter 3. Now, verse 6, he says, be careful for nothing. <laughs> be careful for nothing. You know, that's a big statement. He says that you should not be worried or anxious about anything. Now, let's think about this for a moment. You know, when we start to worry about something, we mostly worry about the future, right? I mean, an hour ago, I was worrying <laughs> about if the technology is going to hold up this time, you know, to, to let the lesson go through. We don't worry about things that, that are in the past because that is done with and none of us can do anything about it and we've accepted it and we go on. We worry about whatever might happen next because of the past. We worry because we can't control the future and we can't see what is going to happen next so, so that we can somehow you know, prepare ourselves at least for it. It is that fear of the unknown that, that puts us in so much distress. And in some cases, that fear can be paralyzing or that worry. And now Paul tells us not to worry about anything. Why? Well, because we know the one who has power over tomorrow. God is not surprised by anything. He knows what is going to happen next. And so he is able to do something about it. And he's the only one. Um, in Matthew 6 and verse 20, from verse 25 to 34, Jesus specifically preached about this. He told us not to be worried about what we will eat or drink or wear. And he, he pointed to some examples in nature. You know, he pointed to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And he, he explained how God provides for them. And then he says that if God provides for them, how much more will he not provide for us who are so much more worth than them. He said there in Matthew 6 verse 27, which of you by taking thought, you know, that's worrying, by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? Can you make yourself taller by worrying? Of course not. So why do you spend so much time worrying? You know, that, that's, that's the point here. It makes no difference to the situation. Absolutely no difference. You know, I ask myself that question as well. Why, why do I worry so much about things? Why do we do that? You know, in Matthew 6, verse 34, Jesus ends off that part of that sermon, and he says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. <laughs> Each day has enough of its own evil. So don't worry about the next day. Deal with today, all right? Because that's all you really have. Now, I realize... It's easier said than done. But doesn't it all just boil down to how much you trust God? You know, the mistake we make is that we put so much trust in ourselves. And we don't know if we will be able to handle whatever the future holds. And folks, that's a misplaced trust. We should be trusting God. Which is why Paul continues to say here in verse 6, we read that, Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That's how you stop worrying. By making all your cares known to Him in prayer, and therefore placing your trust in Him. Now, I did say that God is not surprised about anything. And that, that is true. So, 
he actually already knows what you need or, or what you might be worrying about. He knows whatever you're going to worry about tomorrow. Um, so, but these prayers are actually part of cultivating that relationship with him. And, and I think it also serves as a reminder to us that we are not alone. The almighty God of heaven and earth, of the universe, <laughs> he cares about you. And when you talk, uh, talk to him about these things, be sure to do it with a thankful heart. He says here, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Be thankful. You know, I teach my kids that it is only good manners to thank the Lord for whatever he does, isn't it? <laughs> it only makes sense to continue thanking him while you are bringing your requests to him. You can thank him that you aren't going through whatever trouble you're going through alone. He is there with you. You can thank him for all the previous times that he has helped you. And you can also use that to strengthen your faith for the future. I mean, if God helped you yesterday, why will he stop helping you tomorrow or today? You know, you can thank him that he is the one providing for you. And the, and the list just goes on and on and on. And the point is here that we should always have a thankful heart towards the Lord. And it is those thankful prayers that free you from your worries. Because, because it is then when you actually start to put your trust in God. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Yeah, did, you, did you read that? The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you are saved, then, well, you've made peace with God. That's Romans 5 verse 1. Now, just as an aside here, let me just go off the trail for a little moment. That means that if you are not saved, you are actually an enemy of God. And just in case you think I'm making that up, that's actually Paul's point in Romans 5 and verse 10. He says that, that those of us who are saved were the enemies of God. But that, that has now changed. We are now reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now you can go read Romans 5 to, to get more on that. And maybe even um, go revise the Romans classes again that we had just, what, a month ago. But those of us who have already been reconciled to God are not His enemies anymore. We are now His children and we can therefore also enjoy the peace of God. Now this peace, as one commentator described it, and I thought I would just quote it here for you because I don't think I can state it any better. He says, this is the inward tranquility of soul granted by God. That, that, that's a great description. You know, this, this peace results from fully trusting the Lord, that He doesn't make any mistakes and that He is infinitely powerful and He is therefore to help you with whatever lies ahead. That's what Isaiah actually says in Isaiah 26 verse 3. He says, Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on Thee because He trusteth in Thee. Folks, this is a peace, as Paul says here, that passes all understanding. So, it is hard to explain it. it. It goes beyond all human reasoning. You know, the times that I've experienced this peace, I found myself thinking every now and again, well, shouldn't I be worried, <laughs> you know, because this is a big thing that's going on or something bad can happen or whatever. 
because I was not worried. I was fully trusting in the Lord. Now, I, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to to make it sound like I'm never worried. Okay, that's. <laughs> I think I'm worried enough. But that is the peace that passes all understanding. You know, it's. It's much better to trust in the Lord than scheming and making all sorts of plans to try and solve whatever problem you are so worried about. Now, sure, plans may be needed, but if you trust in your plans, then there is always that element of uncertainty. And that is where the worry lies. That is why you lie awake at night. Instead, if you trust in God, well, then there is no uncertainty anymore because he knows what's going on. Paul says that the peace of God shall keep your hearts and minds, uh, yeah, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. His peace will literally keep you from losing your mind. You know, if you worry too much about something, you can actually lose your mind. People have, but not if you trust in God. So that is why we pray to Him and why we make our requests known to Him, because we trust in Him. If you only play, pray a little prayer every now and again about something that you have some, or, 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 or because you have some sort of superstition uh, about it that you know you think you should pray, so you just shoot a little prayer up there, you won't experience this peace because that peace actually comes from you putting your full trust in God alone. All right, let, let's go to verse eight. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren. Oh, sorry. I always struggle with that word in English. I, I, I wonder if English people can actually say that word, brethren, without struggling. Anyway. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. That's a great verse. You know, people like to say, you are what you eat. You know, referring to the fact that, well, if you only eat potato chips, well, you will start looking like a potato. <laughs> right? Now, your thoughts are similar. You are what you think. We tend to think that whatever's going on inside of our minds are private, and it's perfectly okay to think about whatever just so long as it doesn't come out of your mouth. But folks, your thoughts are incredibly important because it will dictate the way that you will say and do things. Proverbs 23 and verse 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus expanded on this in Mark chapter 7. So you can just turn there. Uh, Mark chapter 7. And I'll just give you a moment to, to find it. Mark chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 20. By the way, that is your attendance code, Mark 7 and verse 20. All right, I'm, I'm going to start reading there. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. 
folks, it all starts with your thoughts. If your thoughts are not in line with the Word of God, then you can't expect your actions to be. Whatever you fill your mind with will finally be reflected in your actions. We read in Romans 12, verse 2, where Paul writes, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You should renew your mind daily so that you can actually discern the will of God. That is a part of the sanctification process. And so Paul says that you should think on whatsoever things are true. That's the start of it all. You know, thinking on things that are true. When Jesus prayed in John 17, he said to the Father, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God is the, the very source of truth. So you should read your Bible. You should study it. You should meditate on it. You should fill your mind with it so that there is no space left for any sinful thoughts. Now next he says, whatsoever things are honest. So don't think on how you can lie to yourself or lie yourself out of trouble or, or to further yourself in some way. Think on things that are honest as they are revealed in the Bible. He says, whatsoever things are just. So those are the things that are right. And, and we have God's righteousness revealed to us once again in the Bible. He says, whatsoever things are pure. Those are the things, uh, um, you know, that are clean, you know. So he says, think on clean things. Don't, don't think on profanity, things like that. He says, whatsoever things are lovely. So think on things that are kind and, and gracious, all right. Whatsoever things are of good report. Now, those are the things that are well thought of, I want to say, by society, actually. You know, things like kindness, respect for others, and so on. And then Paul concludes by saying, If there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. So, anything else he missed in this verse? Well, if it is a virtue, think on that. That is the key to living a godly life. It is to think on godly things. And that will obviously flow uh, or, or, or go to the outside then. It comes from the inside, it goes to the outside. And you will find all of those things in Scripture. Verse 9. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. So once again, like we saw, um, I think it was last, yeah, last week in chapter 3 verse 17, Paul instructs the, the Philippians, rather, not the Corinthians, the Philippians, to follow his example. You must also remember that at this time, the New Testament was still being written. I mean, this letter hasn't even reached them yet while, when Paul penned, this, penned it down. So the only truth that believers had to go on was the Old Testament scriptures, and then, of course, whatever the apostles taught them about this new, new revelation. The apostles had to model the standards of Christian behavior to the church. And so it only makes sense that Paul exhorts them again to do those things that they learned and received and heard and seen in him. But that word, do, <laughs> that is an important word. You know, it's no use to, to gather a lot of knowledge of how to live as a Christian if you never put that knowledge into action. I don't think when we, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ that Jesus is going to ask you a bunch of Bible trivia. 
He is interested in seeing you obey what he has told you to do. Now, of course, you need to know what you should obey. So knowledge is key here. My point is just that your Christianity should not only consist of knowledge. It should not stop there. You know, it should not stop here with this lesson or with this Bible school. We should put this knowledge into action. And the promise that comes with that obedience, uh, he says here, is that the peace or, or the God of peace shall be with you. That, that's just wonderful. Verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. So these Philippians always cared for Paul, you know. Um, it's not like they forgot about him. And I think he, he has made it clear by now. So he's not rebuking them here and saying that they somehow stopped caring for him and now they started, you know, they finally started again. That's why he makes it clear that they did care for him, but they just lacked the opportunity to send anything to him, even though they would have wanted to. Now, the reason of why they lacked opportunity is not mentioned here, but it may be because of the deep poverty that they found themselves in. Paul mentions that actually specifically in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 to 2, where he says the churches in, uh, uh, in Macedonia are in deep poverty. Uh, but he says that there that, that they freely gave of what they have despite their deep poverty. So it might be that their resources might have been a tr a truly exhausted for some time. And that is why they weren't able to send any support to Paul. Perhaps it was something as simple as they just didn't know that Paul was in need of help. Or perhaps they didn't know how to get a hold of Paul. You know, it's not like they could just pick up a phone, send a WhatsApp or make a phone call um, to him back then. But now Paul is rejoicing because when they finally had the opportunity to do so, their care for him flourished again. You know, that's the picture of, you know, like now springtime, you know, where, where the flowers come out again, it, it, it flourished again. And then they sent Epaphroditus to him with, with a very generous gift. Verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. So Paul is quick to follow his statement in verse 10 with this, you know, so that the Philippians don't think or, or, or don't misunderstand him, rather. He was not implying that, that he expected anything from them. Instead, he says that he has learned to be content with whatever circumstances he found himself in. Now, you will remember that we, we did discuss Paul's circumstances that he found himself in at this time when he was writing this. You know, He was a pris prisoner and, in Rome, and although he was a prisoner and probably not doing so well as far as finances, food, or, or health was concerned, he was still content with it. So his contentment was not affected by all of his circumstances. And so he expands on this in verse 12. He says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am, both, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So Paul has seen it all. He knew what it was like to live in poverty and, and to have to get along with just a few things. And then he also knew what it was like to live in prosperity. Those times, you know, that the Lord allowed him to have more than he needed. 
And so he says that he is constantly being instructed to live above his current circumstances. Whether he is full or hungry or whether he abounds or suffers need, he does not let that influence his, his contentment. He is content when he has much and he is also content when he has very little. You know, people really struggle with this issue of contentment. You know, we see how those who abound in their material things are not content and they want to get more. And then we also see those who live in poverty not being content because they want to live like that guy who abounds. <laughs> so Paul, Paul sets another great example here. He has learned how to be content in every situation. This comes from a man who is imprisoned as he writes this. And as I mentioned it to you before, I mean, he had to rent uh, the house that he was imprisoned in with his own money. He had to pay for his own jail cell, basically. <laughs> he always had a guard by his side. He, uh, he probably didn't have enough to eat and so on. And he is not sitting there and longing for those days that he abounded. <laughs> Instead, he is content. He was not focused on the things of this life, but he rather had his eyes on heaven. Remember, he, he said that he was pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He was not trying to gather riches here on earth. That wasn't the goal. And I believe that that is why he was able to be content. He said it uh, back in chapter 3 verse 20 that our conversation is in heaven. So he was not going to let this, these temporary earthly pain and suffering affect his contentment. And so a fair question would actually be, how was he able to do this? How could he go through all of that suffering and still be content? He was still pressing toward that goal of being um, conformed to the image of Christ. How was he able to still do that? And he answers that in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. All things. Now, be careful not to divorce this verse from its context. This, all things that he talks about are these physical things. Whether, whether he suffered need or whether he abounded, he got the strength to endure it and to stay content in those circumstances from Christ. He's not saying that he would be able to physically stay alive, you know, uh, indefinitely without water and food. Um, but rather, when he has reached the limit of his own strength and of his own resources, he could count on Christ to strengthen him and to carry him through all of that. That is how he was able to over overcome all those trials that he went through and still be content. He got this strength from the Lord. And that strength, folks, is available to everyone who is in Christ. Verse 14. Notwithstanding, ye, ye have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. So he says this because he doesn't want them to think that he is ungrateful for their kindness towards them, or towards him rather, because of, of what he just said here. You know, they could have easily taken it the wrong way because they sent him a gift even though they were in deep poverty. So if he ended off his letter to them by saying that, well, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have or don't have or whatever condition I'm in. Well, they could have taken that the wrong way and they could have thought that the gift didn't really mean too much to him. Maybe he didn't appreciate it. Maybe he didn't need it. So he reassures them here that he is grateful that they shared with him in his trouble. 
Now, of course, they were not there with him in prison, but they did have sympathy with him. So they sent Epaphroditus to him to minister to his needs, as we saw in chapter 2. And then he also brought some, uh, Epaphroditus also brought some much needed relief to Paul from the Philippians. So that is how they shared um, in all of his trouble. Verse 15. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Now, I've mentioned this before in these lessons, but Philippi um, was a city in the region of Macedonia. Now, if we have a little bit extra time tonight, I would actually like to show you where Philippi is Sorry, uh, um, on the map of the world. But we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 40, where he left Philippi, Paul left Philippi. And then in Acts 17, verse 1, we read how he finally arrived in Thessalonica. So... And he says there, and he says that there was no other church that supported him financially or otherwise on this missionary journey that he was on. Now, notice that while he was praising the Philippians for supporting him, he is not condemning anybody else for not supporting him. You know, praise of one party does not necessarily mean that all other parties are condemned. You know, perhaps the other churches didn't think about supporting him, or perhaps they weren't able to support him. But Paul was truly grateful for the support that he did receive from the Philippians. And as I mentioned earlier, these people were in deep poverty, you know, as in, as in deep poverty. I think most of us have probably seen poverty before, but not deep poverty. And these Philippians sent more support to Paul in Thessalonica, despite their deep poverty. And then even as he as he was leaving the region of Macedonia, they sent some support again. <laughs> How were they able to do that? Now, I'm sure that some of them had to go to bed hungry for a few, a few more times than usual so that they were able to support this missionary because it was a sacrifice. And it was one that they were happy to make because they wanted more people to hear the gospel and to be saved. In fact, their support, along with Paul's hard work, made it possible for him to minister to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians without those churches actually needing to support him. Verse 17. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. So again, just like in verse 11, he wants to make it clear that he is not saying these things to them so that they continue to send some more support. Okay, he's not asking for more and more money. He's not desiring a gift. Instead, he wanted them to also have some reward from the fruit of his labor. Now, this is an amazing concept. Uh, this is where you can actually use your money to work for you all the way to eternity. All right, Paul, Paul is basically talking about a heavenly bank account here. He says that the investment that they made, these Philippians made, is in, in effect the same thing as storing up treasure in heaven. And instead of that money making more money here on earth, it was actually accumulating interest in their heavenly bank account. So how does that work? Well, 
if, for instance, you invest in a in a missionary, that may be for a foreign mission, you know, uh, somebody that goes for foreign missions or for local missions, and they go out and win souls, you actually end up getting some of the credit for that work, because your financial investment made it possible for them to go out and win those souls. Now we've talked about this many times in church, how that some people don't have the time. But they have, uh, you know, the time to uh, and all the means to go out and preach for hours on end every day. But they have money because that's that's why they don't have the time. They're, they're making money. And then you have other people that do have the time and the means to constantly preach to others. But they don't have the money because they're constantly preaching. So what happens then if you let the body of Christ come together? The people with the money enable the people with the time to go out and preach. And in the end, the job gets done. People hear the gospel and people are saved and discipled and so on. And, and they go on to, to preach to others. And that's what these Philippians were doing. And so Paul worked hard so that they could have fruit that would abound to their account. Verse 18, Paul says, But I have all and abound. I am full having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So Paul lets them know that he has received whatever things you know they sent to him with Epaphroditus. And by saying, I have all and abound, and then he says, I am full, uh, he is actually trying to express how overwhelmed he is by, by this generosity of the Philippians. Now, um, have you ever experienced, you know, re receiving a gift from somebody knowing that they aren't able to afford it? You know, I, uh, uh, I, I told the story earlier, but about a year ago, uh, while my wife was still pregnant with our second son, uh, a lady that I know and that we've helped out financially in various small ways over the years, actually showed up at our house just one night out of the blue, and she brought a gift to the baby, or for the baby, rather. These people, folks, you need to understand, they don't have any money. And she's an older lady. She still works as much as she can. And she lives with her son, who is not able to work because of various reasons. And... These people can can barely put food on the table, and then they brought us this beautiful blue blanket, brand new blue blanket for the baby. I was speechless about that, but you know, and and somehow just saying thank you just doesn't cut it. It just doesn't do it. Now, granted, that that's not exactly the same as Paul's situation here, but. I think that it helps to get the point across. You know, Paul saw the poverty that these people lived in, but they still made a plan to send him a gift um, to, to help him out and to encourage him, which is why he calls it a sacrifice. He says it is an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, he says here, well-pleasing to God. He saw their gift as a sacrificial act of worship to God. And he knew that God would be pleased with it. Folks, it's never a waste of time or, or, or a waste of your resources to give some of your material possessions to help somebody out who wants to go out and preach the gospel. If you do that, you are indirectly giving those things to God 
so that his work can continue. And that is a sacrifice that is acceptable and well-pleasing to God. Verse 19. But my God, uh, sorry, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, like all the other verses in scripture, you know, we shouldn't just take this one out of its context. Many people grab onto this verse and they forget the context in which it stands here. And then they think that God will supply everything that they want. You know, if you want a new house or a new car or a bigger bank account or whatever it is, God will supply it. That's what they say. But notice here that he doesn't say, but my God shall supply all your wants. <laughs> he says, my God shall supply all your need. That's different. You know, you want a new car, but you need food to eat. You want a bigger house, but you need clothes to wear. You know, this goes back to being content. In First Timothy 6 verse 8, Paul says, and having food and raiment, now raiment is clothes, and having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Food and clothes. Be content with that. Now, let's get back to the context here. You know, the Philippians made a huge sacrifice by sending this gift to Paul. And so Paul says that God will supply all their needs in return. They sowed bountifully, and therefore they will also reap bountifully. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. And that stays true even, even today for us. Verse 20. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's response to the faithfulness of God. And, and to his, this great truth uh, that God supplies all the needs of the saints. And he says to him be glory forever and ever. Oh, yes. I can't wait to get to heaven and, and to sing his praises all the time. That, that's going to be awesome. Verse 21. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. So he says, say hi to every believer there in Philippi. Now, I mentioned this when we were in chapter 1 and verse 1 as well. But here we see it again. Every saint is somebody who is in Christ Jesus. He says, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. That's pretty clear, isn't it? But, you know, the world has put a different spin on that word, mainly because of how the Roman Catholic Church has used it. You know, according to them, a saint is somebody who is already exalted in heaven because of some great thing they did or because of their devotion to some cause. And they are officially declared to be saints by the Pope. All right? He, he does that. He, 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 he declares them as saints. And then, of course, they, they have all sorts of superstitions around these people who they have exalted as saints. Now, the rest of the faithful Catholics uh, apparently um, only enter heaven after they've spent some time in purgatory or something like that. But that's, of course, completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. According to the Bible, you are a saint if you are in Christ Jesus. That's it. No single man can declare you to be a saint. And God calls you a saint as soon as you are saved. Simple as that. Verse 22. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. So all the members of the church of Rome says hi 
And that included the believers that formed part of Caesar's household. Now, Paul is very careful to mention them as well. You know, this household would, would not only include Caesar's direct family, but also his servants and his guards and so on. So, so this is just awesome. You know, Paul's imprisonment in Rome resulted in some people in Caesar's household getting saved. That's almost like saying people in parliament got saved because of him being imprisoned. This man truly used every opportunity that he got. Verse 23, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And so he ends this epistle off in the same way as he ended off all of his epistles by wishing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with them. Now, some Bibles have a little subscript there at the end that says, To the Philippians written from Rome by Epaphroditus. Now, we read in chapter, we, well, we did read in chapter 2, you can turn there to chapter 2 and verse 25, that Paul was going to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. Um, chapter 2, verse 25, Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. Now, um, so here in this little subscript at the end of this epistle, we just see that Paul did send this letter along with Epaphroditus. He was the carrier of the message um, as he was on his way to Philippi. Now, I actually wanted to do this since I started uh, teaching these lessons, but I just couldn't find the time, you know, um, because we need to do it. Uh, well, we have to fill an hour. But now that we're at the end of this chapter uh, and we still have a few minutes left, I would like to show you where Rome and Philippi are in relation to each other. Because I think that we sometimes read these things and we read the names of these places and don't necessarily have a good idea of the true scale of what is going on here. So it might help uh, just a little. So let me just show you here. I've, I've got Google Earth open here uh, to South Africa. Now, um, I'm just showing you South Africa to, to orientate you a little bit here on the globe. Now, if, if we go in and we go north on Africa, you'll see here right at the top, we find Egypt. Um, and, and then this blue part here, just north of Egypt, I, I'm just going to describe it a little bit more for the people listening on audio. But um, just north of Egypt, we have the Mediterranean Sea. And then north of that, we find Turkey. And then right there, just, what's that, northeast, I want to say, of Turkey, you find the region of Macedonia. And in there, as you can see, there is Philippi in Macedonia. Now, I'm just going to zoom in a little bit more. And if we go east a little bit, you'll see Italy here. We've got the boot of Italy here. You see it's shaped like a boot. And um, right there, I want to say, in the middle of Italy, we have Rome. Now, I'm just going to highlight these two to you. And then this is a possible route that um, Epaphroditus might have might have taken, you know, going from Rome to Philippi. Well, actually, he started off in Philippi. You remember that? And he went to Rome to minister to Paul, like we just read in chapter 2. And uh, now Paul is going to send him back with this epistle in hand. Now, we know he made it because we have this epistle. All right. But this distance that we have here from Rome to Philippi is about 1,200 kilometers. 
all right, on this specific route. So, you know, they might have taken a different route going up north here or like that, but it would make sense to, you know, go across the water here by the, by the heel of the boot of Italy. But to put that into perspective, that is about the same distance as from Pretoria to Cape Town. That's also more or less 1,200 kilometers. That's how far these guys had to travel. You remember in chapter 2, I said that um, Paul is going to send Epaphroditus back. So Epaphroditus would go back. And then afterwards, he would send Timothy. And he expected Timothy to go to Philippi, spend some time there, and even come back before Paul would even be able to go back to Philippi. So, yeah, I hope that helps. Um, just to put it in a little bit of perspective, you know, um, how vast or, or what, what these distances were. And uh, as you know, they didn't have cars, they didn't have airplanes, so uh, it was not that easy to travel um, like that. But that's the end of Philippians. Um, thank you for listening to these lessons. I hope, I really hope and pray, and I've been praying a lot about this, uh, that, that it has been beneficial to you. You know, I was personally extremely blessed by studying for these lessons and teaching them. Um, but I have one last question for you. If you have learned anything through this study of Philippians, what are you going to do about it? That's the next step, right? Now, of course, we, we will still have an exam and so on, but, but the next step is to do something about whatever you've learned. So I just want to encourage you to, to think on these things. Think about what you have learned. Think about, and not only in Philippians, you know, all these Bible school classes that we have. Think about what you're learning and try to put it into practice as soon as possible. As I said earlier, if we don't do it and it only stays knowledge, does it really benefit anybody that much? So think about what you've learned and see how you can put it into practice as soon as possible. That's my encouragement to you tonight. Um, let's bow our heads and we can pray. Father, thank you so much for all your help um, in studying for these uh, lessons, Lord. Thank you for uh, helping us all to, to learn more about you and about your Son. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that we could learn about the magnificent sacrifice that you made. Thank you, Lord, that you, that you did that and that you said you did it because you love us, because you want us to be saved. We thank you that we can know that you are alive today. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are in the future <laughs> already. You've already seen it all from the beginning. And that we don't need to be anxious, Lord. Thank you that we can trust in you. Lord, there's so many things to be thankful for. I want to ask you, Lord, will you please work in us? Keep on working in us. Lord, please change us. And, and have us be conformed to Christ um, more and more daily, Lord. Will you please keep on working in us? Well, you did say you would. We, we learned that in chapter 1, that you will continue doing this work that you started in us. And we praise your name for that. Thank you so, so much, Lord. Please be with us tonight. Please keep us safe, Lord. And please keep on teaching us and show us how we can use the things that we've learned. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. I hope you have a good night.